past leaders let China freely plunder the United States economy and take the crown jewels of American industry. Now we are finally responding to years of chronic trade abuses by defending our workers with tariffs and anything else that's necessary because nobody's going to steal our businesses, nobody's going to close our factories, and nobody's going to close our plants anymore. They're all coming back. Peter Leopold of the Smithsonian's American History Museum. President Trump has popularized the debate over tariffs in our country once again. But how long throughout our history have tariffs been a subject of big political debate? Well, tariffs really have been a topic of discussion from the from the beginning. That uh, tariffs make uh, great rhetoric, um, really power people up. Um, and one can argue that, that, in fact, the United States was founded on a tariff battle, not American tariffs, but uh, opposition to to English tariffs. We're going to spend some time, um, we started asking questions about ourselves, about how, that tariff debate, and thought uh, we'd bring the audience along to learn a little bit more about the role of tariffs in, in American history, and appreciate you doing this. Before we get into uh, the, the meat of this, uh, what exactly is a tariff? Well, a tariff um, at its most base level is a tax. But there are many different kinds of tariffs. So you'll hear about uh, um, protectionist tariffs. You'll hear about retaliatory tariffs, revenue tariffs, punitive tariffs. Um, but at the end of the day, the the difference between those tariffs is is really minimal. It really depends on um, whether you're paying the tariff or you're paying for the tariff. Um, the most um, basic level, there are two ways that tariffs are adjudicated. One is that it's a percentage of the cost of the item that's being imported, and the other is a fixed um, cost. So in the, when the United States was first founded, um, most of the tariffs were about 5% of, of the value of an object coming in. Um, there were some things that, that were um, actually specific. So if uh, it was, I think, 10 cents on a gallon of wine, and it really didn't make any difference if it was good wine or bad wine, it was still 10 cents a gallon. So, uh, overall, with regard to tariffs, uh, are there, in, in general sense, winners and losers as segments of society when they're imposed? Um, tariffs are really fascinating in that uh, they're very mysterious. Um, really, I, th I think the, I like analogies, and, and uh, thinking about tariffs is, is thinking about a big plate of spaghetti. And uh, everybody loves spaghetti, and, and uh, um, tariffs are, are very complicated and, and difficult to understand, and it's almost impossible to pull a strand of spaghetti out um, of, the, of the plate without touching the others. And depending on your perspective, um, different people have um, really remarkably different ideas about whether they're effective or not effective. People argue about that uh, forever. They are taxes. So um, it's, it's very unclear. Uh, one thing that's absolutely clear about tariffs is the rhetoric about tariffs is extremely successful. And this is something that politicians um, through, uh, throughout the history of this country um, have, have used very effectively to, to get elected, um, being in favor of or being opposed to tariffs. Well, before we get into the founding of the nation and the tariff battles at our, our earliest days, I wanted to learn a little bit more about you. Uh, so you've spent much of your career at the American History Museum. Uh, what's your job there? I'm a curator. Um, I take care of uh, 
um, a variety of different collections, the manufacturing collections, the agricultural collections, a few others. But probably even more important in terms of, of this topic is I'm the project director for the American Enterprise Exhibition, which is our exhibit that looks at the history of the nation, of the people, through the story of business and working people. At this network, we talk to a lot of academic historians. You're a public historian. What do you see as your role, your mission? Well, my my job as a public historian is to get people excited about history, get people excited about thinking and learning. And uh, it's really not, the mission isn't so much to tell people what's right or wrong or, or specific dates, but to make them understand that that any topic is complicated and involved. And tariffs are probably a, the perfect example of this in that, that no one understands tariffs. Even the people involved um, will, will occasionally own up to the fact that they're um, very hard to, to, to decipher. But for the public, what's really important is to know that tariffs um, have huge effects and it's very unclear what those effects will be. So unintended consequences um, really are associated with, with tariffs quite often. Since uh, the Trump administration has brought tariffs back to the forefront, have you changed the way you talk about them in your exhibition? Um, no, we, the Smithsonian is, is, is apolitical. Um, we're we're um, really, it's important for us to represent uh, all sides of the argument. So um, we're excited that people are interested in tariffs because it's a business story and, and it makes people... Uh, lean in a little bit more, uh, but we really are not influenced by um, any one uh, group's interests um, for or against something. But if people are generally more interested in the topic, do you make it easier to find that part of the <laughs> exhibition now? I, I think what you find is that people, as topics um, uh, change, that uh, different portions of the exhibition become um, more engaging, and the, if you go down and, and and listen to people's conversations, they're sometimes a little more heated than they might have been in the past. And we have a few of the items as we talk during this next hour, and we'll look at some of those, and you can explain how they help tell the story of tariffs. Uh, but how did you get started in all this? Uh, in terms of business history? Yeah, that, and your interest in, in doing this for a living, for a profession. <laughs> well, for me, um, the, if, if you're interested in technology, I'm an historian of, of technology, um, the the aspect of it that touches people, how their lives are changed by technological innovations is, is really important. Uh, the role of, of business in that story um, is complicated. And and for me as an historian, that, that complication is really delightful. That that understanding history is very gray, as as murky, as maybe an occasionally a conspiracy is actually true, that, that people have uh, alternative motives and, and will do things um, say one thing and do something else. Um, and it's a just great learning experiences that, that you can apply um, to the future. What sparked your initial interest in taking this direction in your history studies? Well, I've always done uh, industrial history, that, that I'm a big fan of big, heavy, greasy things. And uh, uh, being able to do um, industrial history really requires you to, to look at business, to think about it, um, who the people are, um, how labor is being formed, um, giving agency to all the, all the participants. That, that economists are, are great people. Um, they write wonderful books that are filled with numbers and, and, and are often correct. But uh, for an historian, 
understanding that humanistic part of it, um, the anecdote of a specific object, uh, um, why at the World Trade Center, at the World uh, um, WTO, the uh, um, protests in 1990 in Seattle, um, why they were marching in turtle suits is just a, um, a fascinating time. So let's go back to the founding. You made the point that the nation was really born in the debate over tariffs. What's your point there? Well, the the United States um, trade is what what's really important. Tariffs are, of course, a huge element of trade because they're become a bar to um, uh, importing and occasionally exporting more. Uh, the United States, um, as a set of largely British colonies, was interested in in trade. It existed in a mercantile system, so that the British were saying, you must send all your raw goods back to the mother country, we'll turn it into finished goods, and then we'll send it back to you, and you can buy it um, at a higher price. And people wanted to trade. They they wanted to do the value added. They wanted to be able to trade not only with, with England, but be able to trade with Germany, with Australia, uh, with China. We have a big section in our American Enterprise exhibition that looks at the China trade in the 1840s. Uh, and um, there were a series of, of um, tariffs that were put on to um, citizens of the U.S. The Stamp Act um, would be would be one example that 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 you had to um, pay a tax for any type of document. Um, tea was um, had a huge bounty that was was put on it, and which led to the Boston Tea Party. Correct, correct. So that uh, Americans were unhappy about having to um, to pay for that. Uh, um, that extra tax it was putting on their tea, and uh, sometimes they sent it back to England. Sometimes they locked it up in, in warehouses. In the case of uh, Boston, um, in a violent act, they destroyed the tea and, and threw some of it into the into the harbor. In the colonial period, was uh, the United States really a producer of anything other than agricultural products? Well, the United States. Um, well, they, uh, wasn't the United States yet, so to be <laughs> correct, we're the colonies. <laughs> the British colonies, yes. right. The, um, the British colonies were, were um, certainly exporting a lot of, of food goods. Um, wood was, was very important. But um, trade itself was, was very important. Uh, that that uh, shipbuilding, because of, of the amount of wood of skilled craftsmen, you could build ships, and uh, being part of that, of that uh, trade. So we always talk about merchants. Our first section of our exhibition is the merchant era, which is the 1770s to the 1850s. And we call that the merchant era. And what we're saying is not merchants in the notion of somebody behind a uh, store counter, but a merchant in terms of a, of a trader, somebody who's um, buying cargoes and, and moving it around. And so the, the colonists were... Uh, very involved. Some were very involved in uh, in merchant trade. Of course, most of them were in agriculture. The time of Jefferson, um, which is much um, later, this is well after the country is founded, probably about 80% of all of Americans were involved in agriculture in one form or another. So if people are to understand the roots of uh, the American Revolution, would you say they were in equal parts political and economic about trade? There, there really are, are many different um, um, causations for the for the re revolution. But uh, the United States, um, the the culture of the U.S. has has really um, had a very fine look at at business. 
um, at making money, at creating opportunities um, throughout its, its history. One of the things that our exhibition does is it, is it argues that there are really four big ideas for the United States, for thinking about the mentality, um, what drives people. And that's the notions of opportunity, innovation, competition, and common good. These are sort of the, the credos, the heartfelt um, uh, basis of, of, of the people of the United States that separate them to a great degree from many other countries. And that notion of opportunity is, is really, at its heart, American capitalism. And the notion of common good at its heart is, is really American democracy. And that uh, I, those strong um, really pushes for independence, for liberty, um, leave me alone, those, those, those great things are, um, are felt in that, that, uh, that notion of democracy, but also opportunity, the, the chance to make money and, and do things. One of the items from your exhibit that we want to show people from that period is a teapot that it has uh, insignias of the Stamp Act. How would this have been used in society at that time? Well, this is this is just a uh, a wonderful uh, piece on on so many different um, levels. Um, this is uh, um, this is the English actually um, selling the fact that they're in trouble um, because the Stamp Act, of course, was was much vilified in the in the U.S. and uh, so. Um, people um, had an option of what types of pots they were going to have for their tea. Tea was a, a very um, important drink uh, in the U.S. And uh, um, this was was a piece that represented that that political thought that tea drinking is often associated with with politics, um, with interchange uh, about ideas and concepts. Um, but what makes this delightful in a way is that that it's actually um, made in England and was made for export. And so the um, at the time, the Industrial Revolution is taking place, um, uh, mechanization is taking off, and the potteries in England are becoming bigger and bigger, and they need to expand their market. And so they're very interested in appealing to anybody around the world. The American market is is certainly substantial, and so they make things that are actually lampooning themselves in order to, to make a sale. And so there are sort of many levels of, of interest in, involved in that single object. Another piece from that period is a dress that is ascribed to uh, Martha Washington. Right. This is a, this is a, a, a great dress. Um, her gown, this is uh, Chinese silk. And uh, um, silk, of course, uh, uh, this time is imported, and uh, it really talks to that international kind of trade. And if you look at the early period in the uh, in the United States, um, there was a lot of conversation about the cult of uh, of homespun, of of making a thread, of weaving fabric, um, and that this is a very uh, American kind of ideology. And by the 1850s, Americans are looking back somewhat nostalgically. Um, romantically at an earlier period in the late 1700s um, and talking about this age of homespun, of, of the uh, Yankee woman um, spinning cotton, um, spinning um, silk or, or whatever and, and making fabric. But um, that dress goes to speak to the fact that international trade, even in the time of George Washington, is is very significant and important. So if you were a politician of the era, George Washington, Jefferson, Adams, your choice of clothing fabric 
might be a political statement? Oh, absolutely. Um, if you look at uh, uh, Benjamin Harrison's uh, wife, um, her gown that she wears to the inaugural um, of Harrison um, is, is um, silk, but it's um, uh, woven in the United States, and it's emblazoned with, uh, with icons uh, of, um, of the nation, of the Burr Oak and, and things like that. Um, uh, Keeley is a congressman, um, very big protectionist. Um, he always he was very careful to always wear um, clothing that was American made only by um, by America. And the notion of America first, American made, made in the USA is something that's that's been around uh, for quite some time. So, uh, what are we to make of the fact that the first substantive piece of legislation passed by the Congress when we had signed our Constitution and become a nation on July fourth, seventeen eighty nine? signed in place by President Washington, placed a 5% tariff on most imported goods. Yep, well, that totally makes sense because any government needs money to, to operate, that uh, there's no income tax at this point, and there has to be some source of, of revenue. And, and tariffs in this early period, um, really up until 1913, are, are revenue. One of the prime needs for them is revenue generating, that, that if you're going to have a federal government, and of course this is the argument between Hamilton and Jefferson, is how strong should the federal government be. But if you're going to have a federal government, then you need to be able to pay people, you need to be able to build things, you need to be able to do things, and that means funds. Uh, some money is coming from land sales, but revenue from tariffs is, is one of the big uh, drivers of government. So Alexander Hamilton is Secretary of the Treasury at that point. He's a leading voice for tariffs. Can you talk about um, how he promoted the idea uh, and what the political debates were between his group, the Federalists, uh, at the time and Je Jefferson's party, who had a very different point of view? Right. Jefferson, of course, was um, really a, a states' rights, um, really had a different vision for the, for the nation, really seeing the yeoman farmer um, as as the um, as the quintessential American, um, sort of s sandwiched between the notion of um, what Jefferson probably would talk about the um, savagery of, of Native Americans and the um, evil aristocrats of of England, which would be factory workers. What he saw was the yeoman farmer, the connection to the earth is the great thing, and because of that, really saw very local control as important. Hamilton, on the other, other part, um, really saw manufacturing, um, saw cities as, as the future, and as such, um, creating an uh, economic platform where you have, uh, you have tariffs to protect those infant industries uh, was really critical. And in this time period, uh, infant industries are truly infant, and so that uh, uh, protecting those, those industries is a reasonable thing. Later on, people use that same rhetoric, but it's a little bit uh, tougher to say whether it's um, uh, the protectionist measure in, in later years is as fairly uh, used um, as a justification for taxes. So, and this period of time, as a general sense, the Jeffersonian Democrats versus the Federalists and then ultimately the Whigs, the, the Jeffersonian Democrats were low-tariff people and the Federalists and then later the Whigs were high-tariff people. Right, right. The, the, the um, farmers um, um, 
throughout much of, the, of, of American history, the, um, the farmers of the South uh, um, are not keen on tariffs because they rarely help them. They create, they increase the cost of, of goods and, and occasionally they will protect them. But, but Jefferson was, was not for tariffs and Jefferson was not for creating a big government. So swelling the coffers was not something that he was offered. He was really um, keen on. He eventually has to eat his words and becomes a, um, a person who puts tariffs into place, um, but but certainly not initially. Hamilton, on the other hand, is is um, looking at at uh, supporting the the urban Northeast uh, where the factories are located, and the tariffs are protecting them. So that that efficiency in the United States certainly at this point in the uh, late 1700s is not very great, and. Uh, uh, cost of labor in the U.S. is always extremely high. This is one of the things, well, maybe the two things that you can say about the U.S. throughout its entire history is this, there's a lot of land and there are not many people. And uh, because of that, uh, labor is consistently very high. And uh, in the U.S., people keep turning to new techniques, um, greater efficiency machines, in order to compete with other countries like England um, that had lower labor costs. As we move into the 19th century, a uh, major figure in the early part of that century is Henry Clay. Um, he also had this concept, this economic concept called the American system. What should we know about that period of time, Henry Clay's role, and what his philosophies were? Henry Clay is, is a really interesting character. Um, comes out of Kentucky, and so you would think he would be um, uh, respecting that southern kind of notion of, of um, being opposed to tariffs, but in fact, he is a protectionist and, and is really promoting tariffs. Um, he creates the, uh, in order to, to, um, to get people on board with the idea of tariffs, he argues the American system, which has really three elements to it. Um, one that that um, you charge these high tariffs that are going to protect um, industries, um, that you create a central bank um, in order to create a, an economic system that is is um, easier that you have monetary exchange, and for the uh, this appeals to both manufacturers and to a degree it appeals to the southern growers, the plantation owners, because they of course are are selling their their cotton abroad. But he also promotes infrastructure. And so he says that if we charge these tariffs, if we basically are, are taxing Americans um, on these goods, raising their price on the, on the goods, um, that we'll take that money and we'll turn around and we'll improve canals, we'll, we'll build roads, um, we'll make navigation better. And this, this in fact, will help everybody. Um, and so he puts together this... this um, uh, three-part kind of alliance and, and tries to uh, to get people on board. Um, he's a really interesting person, very persuasive, um, very effective. Um, his campaign medallion from 1844 is one of my favorite things in our exhibition. Well, let's show it right now, because Henry Clay always had presidential ambitions, <laughs> ne never successful at it. But why is this a favorite for you? Well, this I, it's a, a to me, this is just a wonderful piece. On the um, what any numismat would tell you is the, the front, which is the side um, that has his face on it. You can see that he's not very telegenic, that, uh, um, that he doesn't really have the, the physique that, that uh, people warm up to and, and suddenly say he looks like a great guy. But the averse, the backside, is the part that, that I love. And he's, uh, he, this medallion was struck in, the 18, in 1844, 
um, and it was a campaign token. You would hand them out and say, vote for me. And in the back, you can see that Henry Clay is saying, Henry Clay, the champion of a protective tariff. Uh, and then you, there's an image, and, and um, visual analysis is something that, that curators love to do. And so looking at this tells you so much about what's going on. You can see the freighter of the time, uh, this uh, um, three-masted uh, sailing ship. It's flying the American flag. It's, um, it has the media bullet on the top, so you can see what line it is. Uh, and then in, in the foreground, you can see that there's, that there's industry, that you've got a, uh, an agriculture, that you've got a, um, a plow with a sheaf of wheat uh, growing, um, hung over it. And the argument being that the protective tariff will help uh, the manufacturers who are shipping their goods, but it will also help the farmer. Uh, and this is really a sectional view because there's something that's not in this image. And uh, that the, what's missing from that, that image is a bale of cotton. Uh, in 1844, uh, the biggest U.S. export is cotton. And you can see that Henry Clay um, gave up on the, on the South, and he, instead he's appealing to the West. And so in thinking about American politics, you always have to remember North and South is, is really not the case. It's really North south and west uh, and the, the the argument is that if the the north does well the factories do well um, more people will have more money and they will buy more food and the food is coming from the west and so he's building an alliance between the farmers of the west and the manufacturers um, of the north and largely gives up on the the people of the south who are not going to vote for him anyway. As a Kentuckian, that's so interesting. <laughs> uh, so you told us that the average tariffs during the early days of our republic was about 5%, maybe 10%. How high had the tariffs gotten by this period of time in general? They well, were funding the whole federal government, right? It, one of the major sources of, of income is, is tariff. It, it changes in any, any given time, and it's really interesting um, to see how the, the um, as tariffs go up, uh, the the revenue goes up and the uh, federal government budget sometimes um, swells to a point that it becomes problematic and they have to figure out how to reduce some tariffs in order to, to bring it down. Um, it would be an argument that probably Art Laffer would, uh, um, would enjoy because uh, the notion of, of having too much money for, for government ma makes it do things that you don't want. But the the... the the period that really starts to make tariffs um, take off is um, is the War of 1812. That that the U.S. is um, um, is pulled into a war. That that uh, um, the public wars are going on. The U.S. tries to stay uh, neutral, but um, even with its declared neutrality, that that um, American ships are being um, are being um, pulled in by the English and sailors are being impressed. They're being um, taken into into duty. And that that um, Jefferson really wants to stop this, um, creates an embargo that's a total failure, uh, and eventually the, um, the, the um, War of 1812 breaks out and for several years the U.S. is at, at, at war with England. And uh, uh, after that, the U.S. continues to needs money at the time, of course, so it has tariffs in order to generate revenue to fight a war, but it continues the tariffs at a reasonably high rate 
um, because they're in place and uh, they're starting to protect the textile industries, which um, are suddenly in trouble. The, this nascent um, factory system that was born during uh, during the War of 1820, 1812, once the war is over and the British can have their more sophisticated operations, they can bring textiles back to the U.S., that the, uh, that the cotton and, and uh, wool producers in the Northeast are, are looking for protection, looking for help. So tariffs are, in fact, as the, as the decades progress, really increasing the sectionalism that's happening in the country. A- absolutely. It, it's important, to, of course, to remember that, that um, in the United States all politics are local. And so while people talk about general trends and, and aspects of it, uh, at the end of the day, uh, tariffs are are very local and very idiosyncratic, and that's why the the notion of thinking about tariffs as the pile of spaghetti really makes sense, because sometimes um, people that you would think would be opposed to a tariff are for them, and sometimes people that are for them are opposed to them because it has a very local, regional kind of sensibility. That tariffs, the the creating of a tariff, um, starts not with the president, but starts. Um, in the Ways and Means Committee in, in the House. Um, and so you have representatives who are voted in every two years, represent a fairly small district, and they're responding um, to their, not just the nation, but to what their district needs. Uh, and so the notion of pork barrel um, is, is something that, that was um, true in the past, um, as it continues to be, and uh, um, people um, do favors for each other. So log rolling is, is what everybody, any tariff uh, um, politician will tell you, log rolling is the key word, that, that people are cutting deals. And uh, sometimes the, the tariffs are for broad um, national philosophical reasons, but sometimes they're very, very regional supporting a single, uh, single operation. So as the sectionalism increases and leads us to the Civil War, we bring Lincoln into office. Lincoln was a uh, student and great admirer of Henry Clay. He was, had been a Whig and then became uh, the Republican when the party was founded. Where, where was Abraham Lincoln on tariffs? Well, uh, Lincoln was um, really wanted to keep the Union together and did much to, um, to try to do that. But the election of, of Lincoln... Um, sent a very strong signal to the to the South, um, to the planters, and that was that their vote was not going to count. That they there had been a um, a series of battles. The the um, tariff of abominations really um, were so severe that that South Carolina, um, even before uh, Lincoln ran for the presidency, um, uh, nullified the tariff and said that we're not going to pay for it. Uh, and uh, the government, uh, the union, um, stepped in with military force to um, to say that that you had to. Um, it, when Lincoln gets elected, it's it's a sign that the powers um, for uh, for pro business are very strong, and that those anti tariff um, beliefs are probably not going to be uh, pushed as much. Uh, with the Civil War, Lincoln has to create revenue in order to um, to fight the war, so that's a real need. But it also means that suddenly uh, the states that had been anti-tariff are no longer at the table. They're no longer able to vote. And so uh, the people that were against tariffs uh, go away, and uh, the, the political balance changes considerably. 
So uh, after Lincoln then, if you look at the line of presidents from Lincoln all the way up until Herbert Hoover, it was a string of Republican presidents only broken by, what, Johnson, Cleveland, and Woodrow Wilson. So we're in a very much pro-tariff, protectionist era. Um, how did that uh, contribute to the change in the American economy? How much you attribute to the tariff and how much you attribute to other factors is always complex and nobody will ever know. Um, but certainly um, in the latter half of the 1800s, tariffs are gigantic, that, that um, you have really high tariffs. Um, and I would say it's really a question of, of large tariffs or even larger tariffs. If you're not an, an era, if you look at the graphs of, of tariffs, that, that there's never a period of particularly low tariffs. Um, but um, manufacturing is beginning to become efficient. By the 1850s, the, the world is really recognizing the United States as an industrial power. Uh, and as such, there's, there's a great desire to, um, to protect, to, um, to service those, uh, those manufacturing firms. Um, and the tariffs are, are one element to it. Now, there's also um, tremendous improvements. That, that There's technological change. There's uh, um, huge investment in industry. And, and so some of the, some of the push forward is, is coming from those sources as well. And so ascribing too much to tariffs is, is, is certainly risky. Um, but it is fair to say that it's a, a, a golden period in terms of, of industry getting its way. Did they contribute to the rise of the Gilded Age millionaires? Well, the Gilded Age uh, millionaires certainly were very pleased to, to have tariffs to, to protect them. Um, and uh, a great early example would be the building of the Transcontinental Railroad. Um, the Transcontinental Railroad is heavily subsidized um, by the United States government. Uh, Lincoln in, in office uh, um, with the southern votes away from the table um, is able to put, push through a Pacific Railroad. So the Pacific Railroad Act of 1862 says that the government will give a lot of land, um, will really encourage things. Um, but by the way, you also have to use only American-made uh, iron and steel in, in the production of it. So even from... Um, sort of great infrastructure projects like that, the, the American manufacturers are being, um, being looked out for by the government. You talked about the fact that we, people should know that tariffs, now we, it's the president who's talking about proposing tariffs, but then it was the House of Representatives Ways and Means Committee, and the big name of that period was William McKinley. What should we know about his role in this tariff debate? Well, M McKinley never saw a, a tariff he didn't like. <laughs> Um, so was was a huge huge um, proponent of them, um, and uh, uh, certainly um, pushed some of the most. Um, the McKinley tariff is 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 one of the most aggressive tariffs uh, going. Interestingly, sometimes tariffs have just amazing effects. The um, uh, the Supreme Court eventually ruled that a tomato is a vegetable and not a fruit um, because of a tariff. Um, and it seems, yeah, it's a sort of odd story. Any botanist will tell you that a tomato is a fruit. Um, but in fact, um, the 1883 tariff um, put a tariff on, on vegetables and not fruits. And so a, um, uh, a importer um, of, of uh, vegetables, uh, um, Nick's uh, New York, um, pointed out that, that uh, the tomatoes that he was bringing in from the Caribbean 
um, were fruit and he didn't have to pay his tariff. The battle went on for, for quite some time um, and eventually the Supreme Court ruled that, that uh, tomatoes are actually vegetables. And it uh, is an interesting ruling in that, that it had repercussions beyond just tomatoes themselves. We have another campaign medallion because William, excuse me, William McKinley also had presidential aspirations, and uh, it's a, another motif in the eighteen is it eighty eight election? Is that right? Right, right. And and here you can see that um, um, that this notion of of um, being a um, proponent of a high tariff is is something that's that's really great. Is is um, um, is virtuous and, and this is Grover Cleveland mm -hmm. versus Benjamin Harrison and they were on two different sides of it with McKinley in the background as the chairman of the Ways and Means Committee mm -hmm. pushing ta tariffs so what are the politics that we're looking at here well it's really um, about the um, West versus um, um, the interests of the of, of the West and the um, and the South versus that of the of of the Northeast and um, the 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 story always remains the same of of who benefits by the tariffs. Um, there's also, along with the tariff argument at this point, is this notion of, of immigration, of how open the, um, the country should be to uh, people from other countries. And so it starts to become um, uh, the thought, the ideology of tariffs, um, attacks on specific goods, but uh, related to that is, is the control of, of people coming in as well. So if we can go back to those medallions so people could actually see the text um, uh, on screen, if we can bring those back up again. I want to read Old Grover, Mayor of Buffalo, New York. Um, Mayor of Buffalo, Governor of New York, favored tariff reduction, a man of destiny. And then of Benjamin Harrison, Backbone Ben, from Colonel to Brigadier General in the Civil War, United States Senator, an exponent of the high protective tariff. Uh, when William McKinley became president, was he still as, as happy about tariffs as he had been? Oh, he was very happy about tariffs uh, um, as as president and um, really there's there's the little break in um, uh, in the Republicans domination only because of, um, of very deep depressions and so um, the sort of push to for tariffs um, um, re remain um, they they're always you often see um, on things like this the the full lunch pail, or if you look at um, when McKinley runs for uh, the presidency in 1896, his uh, um, his campaign poster has McKinley standing in front of a of a bank and um, talking about how he wants to open up the mills to labor. They're speaking out to labor, saying we will have more employment, you will have higher jobs, uh, better paying jobs if we have tariffs. Um, that'll be it'll be great for you. Very little appeal to consumers, which is curious that that the tariffs um, in theory will will aid uh, manufacturers, which should in fact mean more employment and, and possibly uh, higher wages. But tariffs always end up in in uh, greater costs for goods and relatively little rhetoric about the about the consumer perspective of you're going to pay more for your chocolate or you'll pay more for your, your plow. The Republican Party in the 20th century, early 20th century, seems like it started to have a big split over these economic issues. We're going to turn to the voice of Jeffrey Rosen. He's president of the Constitution Center, but he wrote a biography of William Howard Taft. And uh, he tells us a little bit about the big debate in the Republican Party during the 1910s, 1912 eras. Let's watch. 
So the tariffs are bubbling as a political issue during his presidency, and it splits the Republican Party. The, the party had traditionally been devoted to uh, protective tariffs for uh, income, but not protection. In other words, moderate tariffs in order to fund the government, but not to protect certain industries over the others. But tariffs naturally favored some people over others. Eastern manufacturers, uh, glove manufacturers liked it, and Western farmers didn't because it raised the raw material of goods. So within the Republican Party, there are three camps. There are the stand-pat Republicans led by Speaker Joe Cannon, who want to keep the tariff as it is or even raise it. To, to pander to their constituencies. The insurgent progressive Republicans like, and independents like Robert La Follette, who want to really lower the tariff, although not eliminate it, like the free trade Democrats under Bryan. And then Taft is caught in the middle. So ultimately, uh, we'll get to the point of the time when the country moves away from tariffs and finds another way to fund the government, which is the income tax. What led to that? Well, certainly um, um, the government needs to um, have a source of, of income. Um, earlier, they, there were times where the government was really pulling in too much money and the, it was creating um, a, a bigger government that people wanted. And had surpluses. Right? And had surpluses, right. Um, and so it was, it was a system that was a little bit out of, out of control, and there was really a, a lot of a conversation about that. It's interesting, we s still have some of that same notion even today in, in, in terms of, uh, of tax revenues about um, government programs um, related to income. It's, it's hidden much more because, um, because there's a lot of borrowing um, and we don't run on a um, uh, 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 so close to our revenue streams. But imposing income tax um, created, totally changed the, the notion that the argument for infant industries was was long past that um, that the the sixteenth um, amendment the uh, civil uh, the notion of income taxes um, is 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 created in a time where uh, it's possible to to raise money in a different kind of matter and will really um, push the government in a different kind of direction. The Supreme Court had ruled several times earlier that income taxes were illegal, so it, really, it was required to have a constitutional amendment uh, to make it pass. So uh, if we move then to the era of the 1930s, uh, the government is now having an income tax. Uh, we've gone through world wars. Uh, but FDR comes into office, and uh, how does the policy of the United States change from FDR through most of the 20th century regarding t trade and tariffs? Well, even before FDR comes in, you have to talk about Smoot-Hawley. Oh, and absolutely. Smoot-Hawley <laughs> is Everyone the, learns that in high school, don't they? <laughs> <laughs> right. And there was an article recently about one of the Smoot relatives certainly suddenly discovering um, what their um, genealogy was and being sort of appalled by it. But um, um, the historians, economists, um, politicians all love to argue about the, the Smoot-Hawley um, tariff uh, it's a very draconian one. It, it really um, just ups the ante uh, tremendously. And passed during the Depression. Well, sort of. That's actually part of the problem. It passes, um, it's partially passed before the Depression, and then before it's really put into place, then the, the, the market crashes. And so it really depends on your definition of, of Depression. Um, and that's actually one of the things that drives it. That, um, that 
the depression, if you think of the depression, the Great Depression as 1929 and the fall of the stock market and financial collapse, um, that's one thing. But in fact, agriculture in the United States had been uh, really um, in very, very bad straits for almost the entire decade. The 1920s were a very bad time for agriculture. And there's a desire to improve things for farmers. And Smooth Harley uh, originally um, is formed as a, uh, as a tariff to generate protection for not manufacturers, but protection for farmers um, to raise their, um, their, their situation. Unfortunately, once you start taking a bill like a tariff bill to Congress, uh, people jump on board. Um, and uh, the the log rolling takes place, and uh, the protection for the farmers um, people sign on to, but they ask for protection for different kinds of, of manufacturers. And uh, by the time Smooth Holly was put into into play, um, passed and then uh, put into play, the Great Depression had hit. Um, the uh, high bar of tariffs was very destructive. It, Created retaliation and it it, uh, it stopped international trade, um, and so was was very very destructive. And fairly quickly, um, FDR um, comes into place and starts looking at a different kind of approach of reciprocal trade, um, where instead of having tariffs that are true for everybody, you um, have different relationships with different countries. And it's really a, a different sensibility that 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 becomes kind of defining. Um, for us even to today. So uh, the Congress also ceded to the executive branch the power to negotiate these two. Why would Congress give up that kind of power? Well, the Congress hangs on to it. The executive branch gets stronger and stronger. Um, the, the, the tariffs that are being charged today um, by um, Donald Trump are coming strictly from the White House, and his, uh, his, he's using an interesting approach. It's the, um, it's the Economic Expansion Act of 1962. And um, um, the, the Congress still has the right to um, generate tariffs. Any tax bill, any money bill comes out of Congress. But um, the, this, uh, this uh, um, Economic Expansion Act uh, says the president, in times of, of, of national defense, can impose tariffs. And so it's kind of a loophole that's, that's used. Um, and really, really it's part of this trend of Congress um, having less power and the executive branch uh, maintaining more power. Coming out of the Roosevelt administration, there was the creation of the GATT. We hear so much about GATT, the General Agreements on Tariff and Trade in 1947. Uh, but the next and last clip that I want to show you fast-forwards us from the 40s, 50s, 60s into the 90s. Mm -hmm. And this is uh, President Bill Clinton on the signing of the NAFTA agreement. Mm. Let's watch. It's an honor for me today to be joined by my predecessor, President Bush, who took the major steps in negotiating this North American Free Trade Agreement. President Jimmy Carter, whose vision of hemispheric development gives great energy to our efforts and has been a consistent theme of his for many, many years now. President Ford, who has argued as fiercely for expanded trade and for this agreement as any American citizen and whose counsel I continue to value. 
These men differing in party and outlook join us today because we all recognize the important stakes for our nation in this issue. Today we turn to face the challenge of our own hemisphere, our own country, our own economic fortunes. In a few moments I will sign three agreements that will complete our negotiations with Mexico and Canada to create a North American free trade agreement. In the coming months I will submit this pact to Congress for approval. It will be a hard fight and I expect to be there with all of you every step of the way. And the year after NAFTA was signed, the uh, World Trade Organization was created in 1994. You mentioned the protests that continue to happen when the uh, World Trade Organization meets. So is, what interested us about that was the lineup of Democratic and Republican presidents, and Ronald Reagan before him had been an anti-tariff free trade person. Uh, so we continue on this motif all the way through now, but here in the 20-teens, we are questioning whether or not NAFTA was a good idea, and we have a president that's talking about tariffs again. So is this, in fact, all cyclical? Things definitely come and go. There's no question about that. Uh, um, and everybody always argues about uh, uh, what the cycles are, are like, and people always try to pick the stock market based on cycles. And if they exist, it's really hard, hard to say. But um, the... This philosophical change, uh, Bretton Woods, um, GATT, uh, World Trade Organization, IMF, is all about creating a different world order. That that really following World War II, recognition that it's no longer just about nations, that, that we're in a truly global economy and really have to operate in a different kind of way. And and I think across these, these party lines you see um, the leaders... Um, recognizing that new world order and trying to create um, a, a degree from different perspectives of um, of stability that business always likes stability um, and today what we're seeing is a fascinating return to nationalism it was very strong in the um, in the in the late 1900s in in the early um, 1900s in the late 1800s um, and uh, there have been a couple of Really, I, I would point to three big acts that 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 give us a sense of this um, rising uh, nationalism. Um, first, we saw the rise of Putin in Russia, um, doing things that are clearly self-destructive to the country, um, nationalistic in terms of uh, perspective, but it has has made its power ever stronger. Um, so, a really nationalistic push. Then we had um, Brexit, which again seems, from a business perspective, just Beyond belief, odd um, that 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 the um, British um, folks would would choose to pull themselves out of the EU, um, but again based on on nationalism, um, and then finally the election of of uh, Donald Trump as president um, on this populist nationalist kind of of push, and and we really see the rhetoric of nationalism starting to trump globalism. And that 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 people are making decisions that that are very emotional, um, and not necessarily always good business sense. So, uh, and we we're also talking about tariffs with regard to China. And you mentioned China as an important trading partner all the way back from the beginning of the country. So, how does the China-American tensions play into this? Well, certainly, um, China. The relationship with China have been been ongoing. That that when the United States started to trade with with China in the eighteen twenties, eighteen thirties, 
um, China didn't really want much from the U.S., and the U.S. wanted a lot from China. And that, that kind of sensibility continues uh, um, to today, that, that uh, um, the, the nation is not that interested in, in pulling things in a very insular kind of, of, of notion. And so um, creating a truly um, a free trade with China um, is something that, that, that has challenged people um, for um, really for quite some time, and uh, there's never been a, a moment of, of tremendous um, free trade with China. So in our last four or five minutes here as we sum up, um, so if we were look, uh, looking across his, this history as we have, what are the things you, that people really should know about the history of tariffs in this country and the role that they have played in the country we've become? I think tariffs are so intimidating. They're so difficult, so complex. If you go to a party and start talking about tariffs, you guarantee that that people will, their eyes will roll back and they'll walk away to do something else. It's just not a sexy topic. But in fact, it's really a mistake because tariffs are so fascinating, so interesting. And I think from my perspective, um, not doing the, the economic history, but looking at the anecdotes are so revealing. So thinking back on the, on the protests of the WTO, the World Trade Organization, in, in 1999 in, in Seattle, um, what was that all about? That, that, that one of the problems, as we moved away from politicians that we know and we voted for and we could complain to, um, that was true in the late 1800, 1800s, now in 1999 you've got nameless bureaucrats um, at the IMF or the WTO making decisions and you have no input. And so the icon of the protest were the marching turtles. And uh, everybody thought it was, was really hilarious and really interesting. But in fact, the reason for those turtle outfits is all about tariffs. That, that uh, the United States decided that it, from environmental perspectives, it was important to not buy uh, shrimp from countries that did not put turtle, uh, turtle excluders on their nets. That um, that that the shrimp would be caught, and uh, um, if without these turtle excluders, you would be um, uh, killing sea turtles. And so the U.S. passed um, passed this this tariff that that uh, forbade the um, the import of of um, shrimp from those countries. And uh, the WTO um, said that was an unfair uh, um, trade practice and said that we had to buy shrimp from those countries. And the dancing, uh, the marching turtles were in fact um, activists, really heartfelt people saying that we hold the environment first and that we want to do this over national trade. And so it starts, you start to see the complications, the difficulty um, for these different things. The banana wars would be another um, great example of, of um, how a McDonald's in, in France is destroyed by farmers um, who are making cheese over the U.S. practice with bananas in Guatemala. Um, they're very complicated, very interlocked, and, uh, and people really should dive into to tariffs, certainly at this wonderful anecdotal level, in order to have a better sense of, of how complex it really is. We had a chance to see a couple of items from your exhibition at the American History Museum here in Washington, and we encourage people to come by and see it if they're visiting the nation's capital. But if you were to choose an iconic uh, object 
from today's debate over tariffs. Do you know what that would be? <laughs> well, there's there's so many. I mean, the the exhibition is is chock full of it. But um, um, right in the in the case in the end of the exhibition, there's a there's a, a bottle of Mexican um, Coca Cola, uh, which turns out was hard to collect. But uh, um, what was important was from 2002, and it's it's all about um, uh, about trade battles that that um, Mexico has a big uh, sugar industry, um, cane in industry, and the U.S. is a very efficient grower of corn from which you can make high fructose corn syrup. The U.S. started to export uh, high fructose corn syrup to Mexico. Um, Mexico said this is a bad idea, and they put a, um, a, a levy, a duty, a tariff onto high fructose corn syrup. The U.S. files a, a protest with the WTO. The WTO rules in favor of the U.S. Mexico then puts a tax onto high fructose corn syrup, and uh, um, again the WTO files uh, in favor of the United States, and uh, um, high fructose corn syrup is allowed to be exported to to Mexico. And so that that simple bottle of Coke that looks refreshing but innocent, in fact, embodies um, quite a Herculean battle between forces. Uh, around the world, and and so much of that is is true. And by diving into some of these artifacts in our exhibition, um, I think our visitors will have a a better chance of of the complexity of the world that they live in. Well, Peter Leopold, thank you for taking a very complex topic like tariffs and helping us understand how important they've been in U.S. history. My pleasure, and I hope that everyone has a chance to come and visit our exhibit and and uh, help us think about. Uh, what new artifacts we should be collecting to represent the ever-changing story. All Q&A programs are available on our website or as a podcast at cspan.org.